Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Well, John, we're finally back together in the same room now that our lockdown is finished. Mm-hmm. Yes, it feels very strange. It's been a few months now since we've been able to actually get together and record and and uh, be in the same room, but we've now finally had some of our COVID restrictions lifted and mm-hmm. we're, uh, we're able to actually get together and maybe start working again on some projects. Yeah, our last episode there was a little rough around the edges. They had some satellite interruptions yes. while recording. It's a little hard to work around. Um, so we decided to just take a little break until we could record in person again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's uh, I'm happy to happy to say that we we're able to start working on things again. So hopefully we can get back to our watch and we can record some more episodes and keep chatting more. Constantine Chaikin's already released it for us. <sighs> This is the problem. COVID has slowed us down and Chaikin has beaten us to the Minotaur watch. <laughs> it looks like he's even used a, a laser to engrave a, a lovely motif on, on the dial. Reminiscent of, of a maze. Yeah, that looks, yeah. uh, you know. Well, you know, this is the problem. We couldn't, we couldn't work fast enough and, and now, uh, now somebody else has beaten us to the punch. Or at least we do have some prior art that we do. has been published. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. The cover art for, for episode 82 <laughs> does does show uh, the, the, the laser engraved maze that, that we had put together for our little project. And, and I, I'm happy to see other people doing interesting things with it. Well, I'm, uh, I'm curious to see what it actually looks like on his end when it when it finishes. I I think the the photos that I saw was an incomplete dial. So I'm I'm curious to see what he does with it if he if he decides to fill in any of the maze like we were thinking about doing, or if he's just going to leave it as a laser engraved uh, piece of gold and. And leave it like that. So hopefully we'll be able to start working on ours again very shortly. Mm-hmm. I had presumed that was that was his finished product, but but I suppose maybe maybe he'll fill it in. Who knows? So last episode we we talked a little bit about bi-stable mechanisms and compliant mechanisms and the like, mm-hmm. and there were a, a couple instances in there where I used the words interchangeably in ways that I, I should not have, and I, I do apologize for that. So a number of times when I was, I was talking about uh, various things having to do with watchmaking, it is compliant mechanisms that I was referring to and not necessarily bi-stable. Mm-hmm. Although there are bi-stable mechanisms used in watchmaking yes. as well. The vast majority of the ones I was referring to are actually compliant mechanisms. So I apologize for the fumble there. Someone we've spoken about a number of times uh, on this podcast is uh, Dr. Robert Organ. He is the deputy warden of the Goldsmiths Company and specifically the assaying office in London. And uh, I met Robert through the Santa Fe Symposium. He was a speaker the first year that I was a speaker, and he gave a very entertaining talk on how the Goldsmiths Company had been responsible for helping to catch people who were trying to uh, counterfeit antique silver. And uh, he gave a great talk on on that and the work that the Goldsmiths Company was doing as part of their assaying division and actually hallmarking work. And uh, he and I hit it off. He's um, he's a Welsh man with a fan of who's a fan of rugby. So we got to chatting about rugby while we were uh, on the, the speaker's trip, and and hit it off. And he invited me to come and visit the assaying office. And that's when Rich and I actually went in there and and did a tour of the assaying office uh, while while we were uh, over there for one of our trips. Robert has decided to retire after 21 years in the industry. And uh, he's decided to uh, to pass on the reins. I don't know who it is that's uh, going to be taking over and, and when he's actually retiring, but um, he, he has finally decided to retire. And, and uh, we're sad to see him go. He was a, a great 
voice in the community and um, was an excellent champion for uh, the the people actually in the industry working, the jewelers in the industry working and making sure that they were protected and, and that their work was protected. So thanks very much to uh, to Robert also for the, the chance that he gave me speaking at the Goldsmiths Congress a few years ago. Uh, he specifically asked me to uh, to come over and talk for that. And, uh, and I was very pleased that he that he gave me that opportunity uh, because that was a, an excellent launching point for a few other discussions and collaborations that I've had since then. So I'm, I, I do appreciate that offer as well. Yeah, it's very fortunate that the two of you cross paths and you've been mm-hmm. able to have so many neat experiences as a result of, of that meeting. And it's, it's you know, it's entertaining being able to see some of the work that they were doing in behind the scenes and including some of the uh, the coins left over from the trial of the picks, which is going on right now as well. We've spoken about that. And that's the uh, the ancient trial that is done to assay the quality of coins coming out of the royal mint. I'm pretty sure that in one of our old shows, and we'll have to go back and figure out which one it was, there's a photo of, of myself holding one of the one kilogram gold coins that they had produced that year. I think it was for um, the Queen and Prince Philip's um, wedding anniversary. I think there was a, there was a special coin done for that. And uh, this year they have chosen to commemorate James Bond 007 with a seven kilogram coin. A, a 007 kilogram coin, I'll have you know. Oh, sorry, you're right. 007 kilogram coin. And uh, a few people that I know who work at the assay office had, uh, sent me some photos of, of them holding these coins. And it's, uh, it's quite the upgrade from the one that, uh, that Rich and I were able to handle when we were there. Sadly, they don't seem to be willing to send me one as a, uh, you know, for testing purposes. Like, I can't imagine it's a coin you'd be wanting to carry around in your pocket. Uh, no, no, no. It was, it's a little, little bit large and a little bit heavy. That. So way back in episode 30 of this show, it was titled Hazy Blue Halo, I talked a little bit about some, some photos and, and my woes, trying to get some, some good photos of a, a watch that I was, was working on. A, a small number of those photos have finally come to, to be printed, and they've been published in the, the latest edition of the NAWCC's bulletin. So that's the, the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors. The timepiece in question was uh, the very first documented pocket watch crafted on Canadian soil. Mm-hmm. So it was really neat to uh, be able to have taken part in bringing that timepiece back to life, that bit of Canadian history. If you're, you're curious to see it, you can now see some of those photos in uh, the latest edition of, of the bulletin. Now, I haven't had a chance to read this article yet, so you'll have to pardon some of the questions, but what what was it that needed to be worked on? I, I assume that there needed to be some level of restoration and maybe um, cons- conservation on the piece. Uh, obviously, this is going to be, what, 100 plus years old at this point. So what what kind of work did you need to do on this, this piece? It was an exercise in, in conservation. Uh, so when it came to me, it was completely non-functional. Okay. You could wind it up and the balance would move freely, but mm. it just, there was no motion passing okay. through the gear train. So the piece was made by the first student of the Canadian Horological Institute. His name was John Kincaid, and he effectively made everything in the watch from, from Ross stock, with the exception of the jewels and then the mainspring and the hairspring. Okay. And this was all under the, the tutelage of Henry Platner, who founded the, the Canadian Horological Institute. And there were a pair of watches that were made uh, when the first school first opened up. There are actually only two students, mm-hmm. and they are effectively identical. There are a few subtle differences b- between the two pieces. Um, but yeah, when it came to me, it wasn't was not working at all, despite 
looking like it should be able to work given that the, the balance was moving and yeah. there were no notable bits of wear anywhere. Getting it out of the case was actually a bit of a, a challenge. Okay. Um, it, it turned out at some point in its history someone had affixed it with uh, some sort of epoxy or, or mm. resin or something. Okay. Um, so I actually dismantled part of it while in the case before being able to get to a point where I could, could release okay. the main plate from the case and then get the dial and the hands off and then put everything in for the, the preliminary cleaning. Mm-hmm. It's kind of unfortunate in terms of you know, running any sort of forensics on, mm-hmm. on how things were in situ as it had originally come to me. In examining things under higher magnification after everything had been cleaned, uh, it just looks like there were some raised burrs in around the barrel that were right. causing the the issues. It was clear working on it that he was in a rush to finish it. <laughs> and there are images of some of those cut corners in the article that was published. I can't imagine a student rushing a project at the end of a school year. <laughs> I've never heard that happening. Well, it sounds like he actually made the watch in a matter of months. Hmm. So I believe it was about three months. Okay. And it was quite, quite quick because... Platner, I think, was in a rush to have something to, to show and right. to, to promote the school and say, go right. to the school, this is what you'll be able to do. And no other students after this made a watch like these these original two. They actually mm. have quite a bit more latitude in, in what they did. Okay, uh, But it's interesting looking at this piece and having seen other pieces made by some of the later students and also having read a, a book that, that Henry Platner published about 20 years later on um, the Swiss Lever escapement mm-hmm. and, and sort of the the pitfalls of it and, and where things can go wrong and, and what you need to do. And uh, pretty much every pitfall in the book could be seen in, in this initial watch. So it's clear that at the very least Kincaid wasn't fully privy to all the different ways that things could go wrong. <laughs> but I would imagine even Plater didn't, may not have known at, at that time. Right. And there's some other things too that were consistent in the, well, some things improved over the course of these watches as they were being made. And other things sort of stayed the same. One thing that was unusual to me is that a lot of the students filed the, the square on their, the arbor for their, their barrels off-center, just slightly. <laughs> and it's uh, some pretty simple math to work out how to, to file a square concentrically. So there's some, some consistencies and inconsistencies with uh, the foibles, let's mm-hmm. say, uh, that can occur when you're, you're making a watch. And um, it, it's neat to see the evolution and the fact that Platner picked up on a lot of these and, and distilled them into to a book. Uh, but Working on this piece while also needing to conserve it Mm. was quite a challenge. I was going to say that the conservation part of this really limits a lot of the work that you can do. Mm -hmm. This is something that I've I've had a number of discussions with with conservators about how to deal with various things. And in my brain, there's this desire to bring something back to not necessarily the original state that it was in when it was made, but at least bring it back so that it's functional to that level again. And often that is at cross purposes with conservation mm-hmm. where they don't they don't care about it working. In fact, in many cases, they don't want it working because then it's just going to continue to wear. They want it to stop in the state that it's currently in and they don't want it to progress any, you know, deteriorate any more than it is right now. So that that must have created a, a limit for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly did. It was a lot like working on a, a prototype and not being able to correct the the inherent problems within the prototype, sure. but rather conserve some of those. Well, I shouldn't say some of Conserve as many of the errors as possible while still right. getting Making it to it run functional. again. Okay. Because at some point in its life, it was functional and it mm-hmm. did work and it, it served Kincaid for, for a number of years and, until his, his untimely death. 
Now, is this owned by a public institution like a museum or is this owned by a private collector? At the moment, it is owned by a private collector. It is destined to be bequeathed to a museum here in Canada. Right now, the the watch is in the possession of Gary Fox, who is a a Canadian. He's actually the author of a biography about Henry Platner. It's a book entitled Canada's Master Watchmaker. Mm. And he recently completed another book about the Elgin Watchmakers College, uh, which Henry Platner helped found for Elgin down in the States, which was effectively his his exit from the the Canadian Horological Institute and, and spelled the end for the, the Canadian Horological Institute and, mm. and sort of native watchmaking as, as we knew it <laughs> up till that point. I, I was probably, in terms of the, the pieces produced by the, the Canadian Horological Institute, I was probably the most preeminent institute of horological training that we, we have had here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is unfortunate that, that it did see its end, but it, it was effectively spearheaded and kept afloat by, by this one man. Uh, it was a, a completely privately run college he had to, to finance that all himself. It right. was not a, a public institution. Okay. How long did it run for? Uh, just under 30 years. Okay, that's actually a reasonable run for, for any kind of private school like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the, the pieces that came out of it are, are, are quite remarkable as well. I mean, mm-hmm. you had Canadians producing tourbillons, carousel watches, right. minute and quarter repeaters, all sorts of, of different things, and, and various escapements tried as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, really remarkable what, okay. what they achieved. Roughly when did the school shut down? Just prior to the 1920s, I believe. Okay. All right. All right. Interesting. That's, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate. I, I know when, when I started looking around for ways of learning watchmaking, uh, you know, there's obviously the, the school that's in Trois-Rivières, which you're familiar with, um, but there, there really aren't a lot of options in Canada for learning watchmaking, which is one of the reasons why I ended up taking the BHI distance learning course. Because unless I was willing to go to Poitiers or move out of the country to to get watchmaking training, there just wasn't an option for me here in Canada. Which is uh, it's it's too bad considering the need for modern watchmakers. It's it really is unfortunate. And perhaps if things had, had worked out better with his his allies at the outset, and mm-hmm. maybe had they agreed more on on the direction they wanted to take the school in, it perhaps it would have persisted longer. Right. The gentleman that he initially started the school with, they eventually parted ways hmm. um, quite early on in, in the foundation of the, the school. Okay. It's great to see that you were involved in the conservation of this piece. It's nice to see that it's actually back up and running again, which is uh, which is lovely to see. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to read this article because it's you've, you and I have spoken about it sort of offline quite a bit over the last, well, it's been a while since you've, you've been working on this project. So it's, I'm really curious to see what the results of it are and you know, where it ends up eventually, where it's, uh, you know, where it finishes its life and hopefully somewhere on display that we can go and see it. Mm-hmm. And as far as the photos go, there aren't too many of them that ended up making the final cut. And yeah. and some of them themselves literally got cut <laughs> in publication in, in the way that they're they're framed and whatnot. Yeah. So I, at some point, I hope to publish some, uh, some more of those photos as well so that uh, even more of this history can be, be preserved and, and persist on. Have you considered publishing technical details of this watch? Like, is that something that you that you've thought about doing? So I didn't capture a whole lot in terms of technical details; mm. just the odd sketch here and there to okay. to remediate things. So, if if I had intended to do that, I would have gone into greater detail. The other reason this isn't something I'd put any thought or had considered at all is that because these were student made watches, a big part of them making them was drafting up the technical okay. drawings. And a lot of those technical drawings have persisted and live on. And that's mm. actually how Gary 
the current owner came to know about the okay. Canadian Horological Institute. He just happened to be at a flea market somewhere. <laughs> Someone learned he was into watches. They pulled out a portfolio hmm. of of technical drawings and school photos and said, oh, "Would you have any interest in this?" And yeah. he snapped went down that the up rabbit hole and then yeah. went down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Huh. And have those been published somewhere? Yes. So a lot of that has been published in uh, the books that that he has published uh, about Henry Platner and about the the Elgin School. So that those are are available. I mean, there's certainly more than what's just in those mm-hmm. books, but there's there's enough there to to give a good sense of of what went into the the thinking and, and design of the various masterpiece watches that the students created. Excellent. Well, I'm I'm glad to see that uh, a bit of our horological history is has uh, survived because we don't have a lot of it. So we no, need to really. need to keep as much of it going as we can. Yeah, very very small amount of it. And if you happen to be in the the UK, uh, the the Museum of the British Horological Institute does have another of the the CHI, the Canadian Horological Institute, pieces on display by uh, one of the students, Francis Bentley. And uh, I don't know if it's currently on display, but they certainly do have it in their their archives, and you may be able to get special permission to to go in and see it if it's if it's not out. They actually have quite a bit of their uh, their collection on display, and they've been recently redoing a bunch of their their displays. I know that they've they've just created a new display for their uh, talking clock. Uh, they have the first and second talking clocks that were used through, um, there was a phone number you could dial in the UK to be able to, actually there still is, you could use to to get the accurate time. And they have the first two of those that were made. And they have those on display and you can actually go and listen to them and, and read up about those. So they've just created a new uh, a new exhibit for that. And I know when I was there a couple of years ago now, they were in the process of revamping their watch uh, exhibit as well. Uh, they do have quite a few clocks, but they've got a, an impressive wa- watch collection there as well. So they were in the process of, of redoing that when I was there a few years ago. So, yeah, they're, if you're in the area of the uh, the BHI, Fridays, I believe, they're open to the public for um, for the museum. And it's absolutely worth going in. It's, uh, it's an excellent museum. Now, while I may have encountered a, a woe or two while, while working on <laughs> conserving Kincaid's work, you've encountered a fair number of, of woes recently uh, with your 3D printers again. It's it's never-ending, John. 3D printing is supposed to be what's going to, you know, the future of manufacturing and, and everything is a bright and sunny future in the 3D printing world. But it's it's not as nice as you, you know, as everybody wants to make it out to be. And, and a large part of that comes down to the fact that I'm trying to print with uh, resins that can be used for casting. If you're interested in 3D printing and you don't care about uh, using castable resins, as we call them, then ignore everything that I'm about to complain about. Because, uh, you know, the the modern, a lot of the modern materials that they have are unbelievably useful. Uh, so we're talking primarily about my Formlabs Form 3 printer, uh, which I've had for just a little over a year now. And it is a remarkable printer in a lot of ways, and and the non-castable resins that I've used with it are excellent. Uh, specifically, I've been using their Rigid 10K resin for making fixtures and things like that in the shop. Uh, so one of the one of the projects that I'm I'm currently working on is doing the anglage on the movements for my watches. Swarza Chen has sent me the bridges for my uh, my movements, and I'm doing all the anglage work on them, and I've been able to produce plates that hold and support those bridges in exactly the ways that they need to be. It's nice because I was able to model and then 3D print them out of this rigid 10K material. And then I could drill and tap the holes to be able to, to screw down the plates to 
the bridges to these um, these support plates. You know, for things like that, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, I've also made um, dies for doing uh, hydraulic forming in them and things like that. And uh, some of the materials like that are absolutely exquisite. Uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of compromises when you have to deal with the castable resins. And it's a it's a problem because you need a resin which can be burned out properly as part of the burnout process in the lost wax casting. And that that leads to some issues. And over the years, a bunch of companies have tried to produce different resins which have all of the you know, all of the features that you want. You want it to be something that can be dimensionally stable. You want it to be something that's going to have sharp, crisp detail in it. But then you also need it to burn out properly. And they've got resins which do sort of two of the three things, but never all three of them. And depending on what compromises you're willing to make, you can, you know, you can use different resins. The purple resin, the purple castable resin that they use, I don't remember the exact name of it. It's an excellent resin for printing with. It's very, very dimensionally stable. It's very easy to print with. There's very few print problems with it. You know, it's actually quite a nice resin to work with, and it's it's pretty pretty easy to use. Unfortunately, when you cast with it and you do the burnout, the resin expands when you heat it, which can then cause problems of cracking in your investment plaster. So you really need to use a very high-strength investment plaster when you're casting with it. And that's something that I'm just not set up to be able to use. You know, a lot of the platinum and um, and sort of steel investment plasters are excellent for that kind of work, but they're also sort of a, a ceramic type investment plaster. And so you need different tools and different, um, you know, different ways of handling it. The temperature that you have to cure it at is much higher than what I'm used to with my kiln. And in fact, I'm not even sure if my kiln would be able to handle it very well. So it's it's problematic for me if I want to be able to cast using that purple resin here in the studio. I just don't really have the facilities to be able to do that. If I'm sending the castings out, like for instance, I've been casting through Techform. They've been doing the, the 316L stainless steel casting for me. And they're all set up for doing that because they're using these high temperature investment plasters to be able to cast platinums and and stainless steels and things like that. So for them, it's it's trivial to to deal with the, this resin because it doesn't, you know, it just doesn't break in their molds. You know, that's been a problem for me. I haven't been able to print my own work here using that resin and then cast it. And then I guess early in the year, Formlabs ended up bringing out a new castable 40 resin, I think is what they called it. And, you know, on paper, it's like, hey, this is great. This, um, you know, it's it has a higher wax content in the resin. Looks like it's it's actually quite nice to cast with. So I purchased some of that, and it's not quite as nice to print with as they make it out to be initially. One of the big problems is that you end up with 10% shrinkage from, you know, from with this resin between the print model and then cleaning it off and then, you know, getting to use it in the casting. And for some of us, actually for many of us jewelers, 10% shrinkage is far too excessive. You can't account for all of the things that are going to happen when you shrink a model by that much, especially because you're not getting consistent shrinkage in X, Y, and Z. So X, Y tends to be pretty consistent, but then the Z axis ends up getting having really weird shrinkage in terms of, of how, much you're, um, how much you're getting there. And that's where the layers are building up is over that, that Z axis. 
unfortunately, it's it's trivial to, to cast with. Like it's it doesn't expand at all in the investment plaster. I get beautiful castings out of it, but I don't get dimensionally stable parts. And so, I've been really frustrated with that. And the Formlabs printer is is really nice to use. It's very simple from a user point of view, but these castable resins are such a nightmare in terms of taking trade-offs and and using one over another. And so for the, the cost of a, a couple of liters of this castable resin, you, you've gone out and bought a, a whole new 3D printer? I'm actually trying another printer right now to see what sorts of options I have with other resins. One of the other issues with the Formlabs printer is that you must use their cartridges with their resins. And unless you hack one of their cartridges to put in your own resin into it, you can't actually use a third-party resin in a Formlabs printer. And that's one of the biggest limitations of it. And their resins are not cheap. Their their consumables are not cheap. And so you have to balance that out. And And right now I've been playing with some of the, we've talked about the blue cast resin that I've used in the past. And they've got a more modern resin that they've they've developed and it's it's nice in a lot of ways. So I've I ended up picking up a an AnyCubic Mono X printer off of Amazon, and and as you say, they're they're not very expensive. You know, they're you're talking seven or eight hundred dollars Canadian right now to to pick up one of these these printers. They're very high resolution. They're using a four K display to be able to project onto the the build surface. So you're getting very nice resolutions out of it. There's also limitations with it. It doesn't have a lot of the nice to haves that the Formlabs printer has. So it doesn't heat the build chamber, for instance. That's not a problem when you're dealing with these ABS-like resins that a lot of people are using when they're printing miniatures or or models or th- something like that. But when you're printing with these castable resins, they are very temperature sensitive. And so they need to be, let's say, 30 to 32 degrees Celsius in there, ideally. And so if you're, you know, if you're not, your build chamber isn't warm enough, then you can have uh, print failures because of that. So there's little challenges like that that you end up having with these sort of cheaper printers. While I'm getting very good resolution out of it, there are still problems where, you know, parts will release from the build plate and partway through the build. And so that ruins that particular model that that you're growing there. So you get a lot more failures with a printer like this than you do with uh, something like the Formlabs printer. Yeah, you, you haven't actually been able to successfully print a set of the lugs without them tearing away from the build plate. That's been a problem for me. The the lugs have enough surface area that they're they're causing me problems and uh, and I'm really unhappy with that. Smaller parts I'm not having any issues with printing. I've been trying to print some pen parts and things like that like barrels and caps and that's those have actually printed okay. Um so I've you know I have maybe sort of a 75% success rate with printing uh, a pen barrel for instance and it's producing nice parts that are circular and cylindrical and have the right wall thickness and everything like that. I'm reasonably pleased with the way that some of that's going and certainly for other parts like the buckles for instance I've been able to to print those and they've come out just fine and I have no issues with them. I'm actually thinking about taking a a sort of a two-pronged approach with my 3D printing going forward. I was trying to decide if I was going to keep this any cubic printer and I think I'm going to. And mostly because I want to be able to use that blue cast resin for when I'm casting here in house. It is a much nicer resin to deal with in-house uh, when it comes to the actual casting process. And so I think I'm going to use it for anything that I'm going to cast here, whether it's small parts or other jewelry or whatever, cufflinks, those sorts of things. I'll cast that stuff here in-house. I, I don't bother sending that stuff out. 
for things like the lugs and the buckles for my watches, I'm not going to be dealing with that casting. So I'm not so concerned about the expansion of that resin. Techform's going to be doing those castings for me. And so I think I'm just going to continue using the purple castable resin in the Formlabs printer. That I have no problems when it comes to the you know cast or print failures. I have no print failure issues with that in the Formlabs printer for those those lugs and those buckles. So I think I'm just going to continue using that. It's a little bit more expensive, but I think I'm okay with that. And the trade offs are worth it considering you know the quality of prints that I'm getting out of that. And the fact that Techform has no issues with printing or with casting with those. So the other consideration is potentially using a hacked cartridge in the Formlabs printer. You can buy these little electronics modules that you can hack into the the old cartridges. And then you can put your own resin into that, uh, you know, into that cartridge. The problem then is that you have to tell it that it's a particular type of resin that closely matches the print requirements, the print parameters of this resin that you've decided to put in there. And so it's it's frustrating because you can't just say, all right, this is the exposure time that you should use. These are the, the temperature that you should have in the build tank. You know, you can't just pick and choose all those parameters. You have to go and sort of find a resin that works. And so there's some trial and error there. Uh, but I may try that as well and see how well that works because... Honestly, a lot of the build of the Formlabs printer is amazing. It's it's great. But it is really frustrating that you can only use their resins. And so if you're having issues with their resins and you're not happy with them, you're pretty much stuck with that unless you want to do sort of go off the reservation and, and actually, uh, you know, and actually try, you know, try some different processes and, and sort of do stuff that's not supported at all by the community or by Formlabs. So sort of a double-edged sword there when you're when you're dealing with a nice, easy-to-use product like that, but you're locked into their ecosystem. So is your Formlabs out of warranty now, or would this void your warranty anyway using a, a non-prescribed resin? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's out of warranty. I think they've only got a one-year warranty on the printers, and I don't know if it would uh, if it would void the warranty on it. I, I suspect it probably does. There's probably some verbiage in that warranty agreement that they they won't cover any damages that they think is caused by that, so... You know, that would be that would be something else to consider if you were going to start using this. You know, I would recommend that if you're thinking about getting into 3D printing as a jeweler, I would think twice about using a Formlabs printer. The initial cost as well as the cost of the materials and the, the consumables are quite high. And I think you would be better off initially getting into a lower end printer, something like an Anycubic Mono X or uh, Elegoo have another one that, that's similar uh, in terms of size and build volume and resolution as this one. I think you'd be better off dealing with one of those printers. Uh, certainly, there are some. There are a couple of other printers that are in, sort of in between the, the price of those and a Formlabs printer. Some that are a little bit more professional, and they would probably do quite well also. So I think if you're if you're going to do do your own printing and your own casting with those prints, I would certainly recommend getting into getting into three D printing with a cheaper printer. And something that you have more flexibility. Because there are dozens of different castable resins on the market now. B9 put out some really nice um, resins. Uh, as I said, Bluecast put out some nice resins. And there's a few others that are out there on the market. And this Anycubic printer will allow me to experiment with some of those other resins. I can buy a half liter of one of those other resins for 
$120 and experiment with it and get to know it and see how well it works. And I can pick and choose the ones that I like and I can then end up with a result that I'm, I'm happy with. So I like that flexibility with them. The AnyCubic printer it gives me that, that flexibility. And, you know, frankly, it's, I can start doing things like I'm building a, a heating element for the build chamber so that I can heat the, the build chamber and make sure that it's a, you know, a good temperature for the, the prints and everything like that. And, you know, so there are ways that I can easily modify these printers. They're not difficult to, to sort of hack and, and uh, work on. Well, hack away. We've talked about the, the Rigid 10K a bit in the past, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not originally what you had intended to use for making the, the fixtures for putting the English on the plates. <laughs> what, what eventually brought you down yeah, this path? Yeah, the, my damn mill. I, my uh, tag mill is, is something that I've, I've struggled with. I've, I've had a love-hate relationship with that tag mill over the years. It's a, a small desktop CNC mill that, that's out there. And I've had that one for, oof, I want to say that I bought it in 2007, 2008, something like that. So it's, you know, I've had it for a long time and I've, I used to use it primarily for machining waxes. So I would use a very hard jeweler's wax and it machines beautifully. If you use a, a high speed spindle, you know, 20,000, 25,000 RPM spindle and a very small um, cutter, you know, so the, the tip on it is, is maybe five thousandths of an inch thick. So it's a, you know, it's a little thicker than a, than a sheet of paper and you can get some beautiful detail out of a piece of hard wax like that. So I did a lot of machining of that. And, and in fact, many of my first pens, a lot of my first jewelry, that was all being uh, machined from those waxes. And it was, they were, they were really, really nice to work with. Indeed. One of my favorite of your pens was, was birthed on that mill. <laughs> so, you know, so that's, it's, it's an, it was a good mill and I've, I've, I have put literally thousands and thousands of hours into that mill uh, from a machining point of view. But it's also had thousands and thousands of hours on it. And so I've had to do a lot of upgrades over the years to try and keep it operational. And a lot of those are starting to catch up to it in terms of their, you know, their reliability. Uh, so one of the things I did a few years ago was I replaced the V-thread screw that was in there that was driving each of the axes. And I replaced them with ball nuts and ball screws, which are typically more accurate and they have less resistance. So they there's better energy transfer, so they move the, um, the the machine around faster and more efficiently. But unfortunately, the small ball screws that I have to use in order to get, you know, to fit everything in the existing castings that are there, uh, they, they're quite small and, and they're not really that high quality. So I'm getting a lot of lost motion in those axes now. And unfortunately, with some of the work that I want to do now, like for instance, machining these uh, support plates for the uh, the bridges that kind of work requires um, a lot of precision and when you're losing six thousandths of an inch of travel every time it makes a direction change that adds up very very quickly particularly with a lot of these high speed machining toolpaths and i you know i was just having too many problems with it so i did a couple of other upgrades to see if they would help fix the problem and I just cannot get it accurate enough at this point to uh, to do that kind of work. And so it's going to still do some work, but sort of less critical work and, and things which don't require um, high-speed machining tool pass and things like that. So they'll, it'll be able to hold some tolerances a little bit better than, than what it is. 
but I've, I've basically decided that it's going to be sort of retired at this point. And uh, the work that I was planning on doing with it, I'm doing in other ways. So that's allowing me to, to take advantage of things like the, the 10K, the rigid 10K, to be able to print those support plates, uh, doing the prints to be able to have the lugs cast, for instance, because I had thought about machining the lugs on the tag mill. But I'm realizing now that, that it's not going to be able to support doing that kind of work for me. So fortunately, I have other ways of doing the work that I had planned on doing on it. Um, but it is, I think it's pretty much at the end of its life at this point for me. Mm. In, in most respects, this mill would not recognize its itself. No, it's it's sort of a mill of Theseus, right? It's It's been, all the parts have slowly been replaced. I mean, even the headstock at this point, that column, uh, that sort of iconic column that the tag mill has, uh, you know, it's now a piece of 35 millimeter linear rail that has a big spindle on it and everything. And it's it's a you know, really the only thing that's still there from the original machine is the XY casting, you know, sort of the, the saddle casting that's there, and then the table top. Other than that, I've basically replaced everything on this mill. I, I had sort of realized that I either needed to spend a lot of time and energy uh, upgrading this machine to do what I need it to do, or I just needed to figure out a, a different way of working on it right now. And I'm I'm now looking into which machines to replace it with. So I'm probably going to start looking at either a, a Haas mini mill, one of their super mini mill twos, or potentially the Haas compact mill, depending on features and, and what I actually need to, this machine to do. So that's sort of where I'm going down next is to is to replace it with one of those machines. And the whole reason you had endeavored to make these fixtures for the, the plates and, and bridges was to do some finishing work. On the timepieces that you've been working on, and uh, how's that been going? It's been an interesting process. I, I've got a lot of experience finishing metals. Uh, one of the nice things about being a jeweler is that you spend a lot of time finishing metals and and learning about how to finish metals and how how to highly polish things. So it's been nice taking those skills and working with them in a different way. And and that different way at this point is taking the raw bridges that Swarzechen have machined for me for my my movements. And I'm taking them and I'm refinishing the surface of them. So I'm using a, a crushed ruby to, um, to basically sandblast the top surface of the bridges and put a very nice sort of uh, a nice finish on it. It's not a, a satin finish that's on it. It's got a bit of a specular highlight finish to the, you know, to the surface, which is nice. It's, I, I like it. It's a bit of a different contrast to a lot of the other finishes that people are using on bridges. And then I'm doing all the anglage on it. So I'm actually putting those original surfaces, those original bevels on the parts uh, because the way they've machined them, they're just square edges that are on all the parts. So I'm doing all the beveling that's on there and then bringing all of that up to a high polish. And same thing with all of the countersinks. You know, I'm doing all the countersink work and then polishing all of those countersinks as well. And then once I'm finished with all these, I'll be plating them to protect the surface finish because they are brass, so they'll eventually oxidize if I don't plate them. So I'll I'll end up plating them and then send them back to Swartzichen where they can then um, install all of the rubies, set them all properly, build the watches, time them, make sure that everything is timed properly and everything is working properly, and then they'll send me back the the finished movements once they're done with them. And because we are recording this in in an audio 
medium and, and mm-hmm. not uh, a visual medium, just for, for our more astute listeners. It is not a specular finish. It is a speckled finish. Speckled finish. Thank <laughs> you. Yes. <laughs> uh, a specular finish is much more mirror-like yeah, than, yeah. Uh, yeah. than what you've achieved here, which is actually quite beautiful. It's not what you would typically think of when you think of sandblasted finish or, or bead-blasted finish in watchmaking. Uh, this has uh, a lot more depth and nuance to it. It's it's sort of an interesting compromise because I'm I'm a big fan of the the texture difference, the contrast that you get with a bead blast or a sandblasted finish versus the high polished edges that you end up with from the the anglage. I I'm a really big fan of that. Like that's a it's a very classic look in English watchmaking, mm-hmm. for instance, where you get these nice you know these nice finished um, sort of even finished fields on the plate, and then you'll end up with a very bright polished cut from an engraving, for instance, from a hand engraving. I love the look of that. I think that's a really nice contrast. It's very different than using something like a Cote de Genève or, um, you know, or something like that. But it's, I really do like that contrast. And then I also really like the texture that you get from something like uh, what Regep Regepi does, for instance, mm-hmm. where he's doing the, you know, the hand uh, punched fields, you know, to be able to do um you know, to be able to do a, a, a deeper texture. But that's, that's being done at a, you know, that it is a much deeper punch mark that's being put into the part, even though it's not very deep at all. Like, to, you know, to the human eye, it doesn't look very deep. But it is much deeper than what I'm getting out of this. So this is kind of a nice sort of middle ground between the two of them. You're getting a little bit more reflection, a little bit more detail and character out of it. And then you are out of something like the... Uh, the bead blasting, but it's not going quite as far as the, you know, that hand punched surface that somebody like Rajep is doing. And I, I like the balance between them. It's, um, it's sort of a nice, a nice compromise. Mm-hmm. It's certainly distinctive compared to say the, the old English frosting mm-hmm. or what Rajep is doing, or indeed just about any other sandblasting that, that you see on uh, other watches. I, I think the only pieces I can think of that sort of would compare somewhat in this level of speckledness mm-hmm. uh, would be from like the Gronfeld brothers mm-hmm. or Grubel Forzi. They've executed similar finishes in some of their pieces, but even then it, I don't think it's quite as pronounced or, or deep as what you've achieved here with the, the crushed ruby. Uh, I think the first time I'd heard anybody doing something with crushed ruby like this was uh, one of the Japanese watchmakers. I I can't remember off the top of my head. It was a couple of years ago that I saw it. And it was interesting the way he was doing it because he was using, he would put the, the part down into a bucket and then was using a funnel with water with the crushed ruby in it and was letting it flow down from, let's say, three or four feet up. Uh, He was just holding it in his hand and was letting it run down on top of it and was just letting gravity do the work. And it was a very subtle finish. It wasn't, it didn't get quite as many sort of little speckles as what I'm getting because I am using an air delivery system. Now, I've turned the PSI way down on, on this because... The first time I tried it, I had the PSI turned up and, you know, you were sitting there watching it, like blasting away metal and and completely destroying the the uh, the shape and the the dimensions of of some of the parts. So it's it is really turned down quite a bit, but it is still a little bit more powerful than than that. So there are not a lot of people that I've seen using this technique to do to do this work. And it seems to be all people that are, you know, sort of doing very small numbers of watches and, and people that are really sort of trying to achieve something different with the the finishes that they're working on in their own watches. Mm. 
I believe the Japanese watchmaker you're thinking of is Masahiro Kikuno. It might have been, yeah. On an industrial scale, the reason they, they would err away from using something like this is you do need to be paying attention to what you're doing. Yes. Because the amount of material being removed by each one of those little pieces of, of ruby blasting up against the metal is removing significantly more material mm-hmm. than would be removed by a finer grain medium. Yeah, and when, when I'm talking about putting this into a blast of air and crushed ruby, these parts are spending seconds at most in in that blast. Like I'm I am moving it through that blast and, you know, passing it through at a pretty good pace. It's not spending any significant amount of time in there. Because if I you know, if you leave it in there for five seconds, all of a sudden none of the ruby holes that have been precision drilled and reamed are going to be accurate anymore, right? Your edges are now all of a sudden, they've been destroyed and there's no, you know, there's rounded and soft edges in places. You know, the edges of screw holes now all of a sudden have been, you know, have basically been destroyed and they're they're a curve now instead of having a, a nice sharp edge there. So there's a, you do have to be very careful with this. It's not like bead blasting. Bead blasting, you can get away with a lot because typically you're talking about glass beads and those glass beads, while they are hard, they still tend to bounce off of the metal and they tend to, you know, they have more elasticity than the, than the ruby does and they don't have sharp edges. And so because of that, you're doing more of a, a planishing effect with the, with the, the, those little glass balls. And with this, because the, it is sharp and because the ruby is so hard, it does actually tear away the metal quite, quite quickly. So you do have to be very, very careful when you're doing this. And it's not cheap. These, this crushed ruby is ridiculously expensive compared to, you know, compared to bead blasting media. So that is also another consideration. If you're doing this on an industrial scale, the the cost of just media alone would, would put it beyond what most large companies would be willing to pay. Mm-hmm. It would take a, more than a lifetime of, of broken jewels at, at the bench to, <laughs> to, to accumulate the, the amount that, that you have in yeah in that reservoir of medium that yeah. you have. Now, how's the, the English itself been coming along for you? It's been really good. I'm, I'm finally at a point where I'm happy enough with it. It's one of those balances where, with finishing, where you have to get to a point that you're happy and you're still spending a reasonable amount of time on it and not going too far and you've spent too much time on it and now you can never recover the cost of, of how much time you've put into the finishing. So it's it's never going to be perfect. And so it's a question of how close to that perfect do you want to get before you're you're happy enough with it and you can balance out, okay, now somebody, you know, somebody other than Jeff Bezos can afford to pay for the work that I've just done on this on this watch, right? So that's that's a that's always that balance. So I'd say at this point you know, if if you've got somebody like let's say a Dufour, it's sitting at a hundred percent in terms of the the quality of finish. You know, I'm these are probably starting to sit at like a ninety six percent, and I'm I'm okay with where it is right now. Only somebody I think with a with a decent loop and an an actual knowledge of what's going on with the finishing is really going to notice the the little problems that are with it, and those are things that are going to improve over time. These are the first pieces that I'm doing my own anglage on. And while I know a lot about polishing metals and I know about how to how to bring up a nice high polish on them, there are, are all sorts of nuances of how do you put those bevels on there? How do you make sure that they meet properly at a corner? 
an outside corner, that's very easy. What happens on an inside corner? What happens when you have a curve and it then flows into another line where you don't want that englage happening across the entire line? Because maybe it's going into a, a pocket that you don't want to, to have, uh, have beveled. So it's, it, there are all sorts of decisions that you have to make there. And, and it's taken a while to get the, you know, to make those decisions to get to the point where I'm happy with where they are, which surfaces I've chosen to, to, to bevel, which ones I haven't, how far I've gone, how deep they are. All those are decisions that you have to make, and you can only do them through experience. And as I work on more and more of these, it's becoming faster for me to do that work, and they're becoming better. Uh, you know, the last bridge that I did, I was able to do in under an hour, whereas the first one I did, you know, it took me two weeks of playing around and figuring out, okay, have I gone too far here? All right, I'm not happy with where that is. I'm not happy with how those edges meet. I'm not happy with the way that that, you know, that that line is blended with another one. So those are those are all things that are, you know, as I as I work through more and more of these, it will only get better and better. And so I think that at this point, I'm happy with where they are now. Five years from now, I'm going to look back and say, well, you know, that was sloppy work, but it's still good enough for what I'm trying to do right now, and I'm happy with that. Well, at this stage, in, in your mind, what, what distinguishes a, a 96 from a, a 100? What, what is the gap you uh, will, will endeavor to close? When you've made a thing, let's say you're making a, a piece of, of high-end jewelry, um, the making of the thing is probably 90% of the, of the work, at least in terms of, you know, what's actually happening, like making, you know, bringing together a bunch of parts and, and doing mass forming and things like that. And then that finishing is the next 10%. But the problem is that finishing usually takes more time than the rest of the manufacturing does. Mm -hmm. And the way I've looked at it through my jewelry making over the years is that, you know, every percent at that point takes as much time as everything before that, everything before that right? And so it, it really is you are working through orders of magnitude of, of work and effort to get it to that next level. And so the problem is that, you know, getting to a 97% is going to take as much time as it took you to go from 90 to 96%. And do you want to, you know, is it worth that extra time and effort to do it? And absolutely it is once you get to certain stages. But then part of it as well is, is an experience thing. How do you, you know, how do you take that much time to, to work on, on this part? I imagine somebody who has no experience doing polishing work would have a very difficult time even getting to the level of polish that I'm getting now. And how do you how do you teach somebody to get to that point? Well, unfortunately the only way you get to that is by by doing it. And so I'm fortunate to have that experience to be, you know, to have already been able to to do that finishing in other pieces. So things like how do you, you know, how do you go from a something with like a 10 cut file which is still leaving very very fine you know, lines on your, on your surface to then bring it to where it's a bright, bright finish. And it looks, you know, for most people, they look at it and go, wow, okay, that is a perfect, perfect polish on there. How do you, how do you go through that? You know, what types of micro mesh do you use? How far down do you go? I'm going down to a, you know, 0.3 micron micro mesh on that surface, but then there's another two layers of polishing that happen after that with different buffing compounds and things like that to to work with and so how do you how do you get past that point and how do you how do you keep going and that's all just experience and practice and i think that 
over the next couple of years, as I get to experiment with more watches and I get to work on more watches, I'll be able to slowly work up to where I'm doing better and better levels of polishing. And some of it is decisions that I make in terms of where those angles go and how deep they are and and where they meet and how they meet on the edges and things like that. So some of that's just I need to I need to make a bunch of watches and that just takes time. You know, it's going to be a few years before I'm I'm truly happy with where the the finish is on these watches, but I think right now it's good for what I'm trying to do. And in this case many of those decisions are are being forced upon you. Yes. Cuz you you haven't laid out the bridges, you haven't designed the bridges. So you haven't been able to to put in the thought at the outset yourself of exactly how each curve and each cut and each corner edge is is going to be finished mm-hmm. from the very outset you're you're working with a a finish finished in, a finished in quotation shape. yeah marks yeah a, a a predetermined shape yes. that you have to work within and then apply your own tastes and and wishes and and desires to and then uh, you make the decisions there but when perhaps down the road you're you're able to to design your own bridges then you'll be able to put thought in from the very beginning as to how things are going to be finished and then i think that will help take away a lot of sort of the roadblocks that, that you encountered working out exactly how you're going to finish these bridges in this case it certainly will and, and even when i think about the design that we have for the project minotaur bridges that because we've redesigned all of those 6497 classic bridges we've designed our own and we we talked about a lot of that we made decisions in the design of those bridges where we knew okay we want this to look here look like this we want that to look like that we know that if we you know if we do this kind of a curve and it blends into that curve well then how do we finish that and we made some decisions where the does, the the final finish is going to be more intentional and it's intended to be angled and beveled in the way that we want it to be and so it's going to be easier for us to do that because frankly we already made those decisions early on in terms of what that was going to look like and and where the where parts were going to meet and where edges were going to meet and things like that and that's that's those weren't necessarily considerations that source chen was making when they designed these bridges you know this it's you're right there as i as i start designing my own parts and as i start designing my own movements i'm going to have more control over that and i'll be able to make decisions that they haven't made for me in a way that I would want to make them. So, yeah, some of that some of that will improve over the years as I as I make uh, you know as I make my own movements. And you know, for now, I'm very very happy with what Swartzichen has supplied me. They're remarkable little pieces, and they're incredibly well made. I certainly don't want to take away from anything that they've done. They're excellent excellent work that they've done, and what they've supplied me with is amazing. It's just I have to make choices now that. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have designed the bridge in the way that they did with the choices that I want to make in terms of that engloge. So we'll see. I'm happy with where it's going and and uh, quickly moving through the work that I have now. So I'm hoping that by the end of July, I'm in a position where I have these bridges finished and I can send them back and, and they can start working on assembling the watches because they'll need about three months, three or four months to be able to actually assemble these watches once uh, once they get them back. And work will begin on the dials, I presume. Yeah, the the next thing is going to be dials. Um, I haven't done nearly enough work on those dials. I've been experimenting a little bit with some designs, and I know what the the general layout of the watch dial needs to be. I know what I'm I'm doing in terms of typefaces and things like that. That's all pretty much set in stone at this point. 
There's a little bit of tweaking that Lee's going to be helping me with in terms of getting exact placement of, of numbers and things like that. So there's a few things that, that need to be tweaked a little bit. Really, at this point, the big thing is going to be the engine turning and getting that working right and getting the engine turning to a point where I'm happy with it. So once I'm I'm, ha- I'm looking forward to getting the Anglage done and getting those bridges back to Swartzichen, because then I can start to actually focus on the dials. And that's the, the next really, really big thing. And the hands, I haven't really done any work on the hands yet. So I need to really do need to start focusing on those too. So you're taking the, the inverted Daniels approach? <laughs> well, no, I already had a pretty good idea of what the dial was going to look like. And, and frankly, the dial was, was sort of predetermined in a lot of ways because again, they designed the movement for me. So, uh, you know, I know where the the minute and hour hand are going to go. I know that there's a sub-second dial. I know that there's a a power reserve indicator at nine o'clock. All of those are decisions that they had already made. So I'm working within that and I have to sort of decide how that's going to look. Well, a lot has certainly happened since we last recorded. There's Watches and Wonders, WWDC, all sorts of fun stuff. Many new surprise releases from a number of brands, uh, which clearly we, we didn't have time to touch on today. Hopefully not as much time passes between now and, and the next time we, we get together given that the lockdown measures have ended. And hopefully we can get uh, the ball rolling once again on Project Minotaur there. And I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how things come together for these dials for you. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at underthelope. And Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand. <laughs>